Our God, we're grateful to you for the rain which you have sent our way, and we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, we know that you are the author of our strength, of our, all of our abilities, and most of all, you are the God of our hope. And Lord, we look forward to what you are going to do in our lives in the days which are before us. We thank you for this time of fellowship together around your word, and, and we pray your special presence in each of our lives, and that you truly will open our minds and hearts to understanding. And Father, we ask that you will bless this week, especially as the focus is upon world missions. We're here, Father, not to please ourselves, but to serve your kingdom. And whatever role we might have in prayer, in giving, in going even, we ask, Lord, that we will be faithful in fulfilling it and that the challenge this week will speak to every one of our hearts. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to you for this hour in Christ's name. Amen. Third chapter of Genesis, verse 20. We have seen the account in this third chapter of what is traditionally called the fall. We have looked at God's uh, response to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. Now sort of an epilogue, verse 20 and 21. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We're told here that Adam called his wife's name Eve, which specifically meant living. And by extension, as we see in the passage, the mother of all the living. Now, what's interesting is there weren't any other living human beings at that time. There was only Adam and Eve, apparently, if this is chronologically uh, placed here. But it seems, uh, th this naming of his wife seems to indicate uh, Adam's faith in at least two things, which I have listed there on your outline. First of all, that he believed that the promise that God had made, which we read in Genesis 3.15, was going to come to pass. Now, of course, obviously, I think he thought it would probably come to pass sooner, historically, than it did. But that one day, a descendant of Eve would give birth to the Redeemer. And the Redeemer would be the one who would restore eternal life to those who had forfeited it by their sin. Secondly, I think he believed because of this promised Redeemer and because of God's mercy, that from their loins would come a race of people who would be living people, who would not be utterly and completely and ultimately damned forever, but because of the promised Redeemer, there would be this hope, and there would be this restoration, and thus there would be a living race. Verse 21 sometimes might be viewed as simply a parenthesis, just an informative statement of some sort. But I think there are at least a couple of important points that we can make out of verse 21. I think, first of all, it's interesting that God does not chide or did not chide Adam and Eve for attempting to cover their nakedness. 
or they were hiding and they had put on the fig leaves and, and God didn't really say anything about that. He didn't say what a foolish thing you have done, you know, who told you you were naked that he did say that, but uh, he didn't make any derogatory statements about their attempt. But what it was very clear, not only in should have been in their eyes, but in God's eyes, what the, was that the fig leaves were quite inadequate. Okay, if you think about it for a minute, how long would fig leaves last anyway? Um, leaves always have a tendency to dry up pretty quickly, uh, and they weren't exactly terribly effective. And you probably have noted, if you've been to very many museums of the world, that uh, they've tried to artistically put fig leaves on various individuals that have been carved out of stone or painted. And it looks a little ridiculous, but God chose to make for them more adequate and more durable clothing. And the implication is here that he made for them tunics, which, of course, would hang probably to their knees or, or who knows how far down. The important point here is that the sense of shame which they felt which was expressed in their attempt to cover themselves, was a natural result of the loss of innocency. As soon as their, quote, eyes were opened to the evil side of the spiritual realm, um, they were no longer innocent. They had chosen to act in disobedience, and thus they were guilty. And there was this desire to cover up, and we talked about that already. What's interesting is that most people today are still attempting to put, quote, fig leaves upon themselves. That is, by their own self-righteousness, uh, by acts that are carried out in the flesh, they're trying to make themselves acceptable to God. And so many who even darken the doors of churches on Sunday mornings do so in their own self-righteousness, and they think by this act that somehow God will be pleased and, and they have their, quote, fig leaves on. But it is not adequate, of course, as we well know. I think another point that we can derive from this is that in order to obtain the animal skins that were made into garments, animals were probably slain. Now, obviously, God could have just manufactured these skins out of nothing, just like he created the whole universe out of nothing. But that doesn't seem likely. It isn't stated here that this is so, but it's very possible that God even required them to watch the process of the slaying of the animal and the acquisition of the skins that would be necessary to clothe them. It's kind of interesting, John Calvin doesn't like the idea of God becoming a furrier, he thinks that what this really is saying is that God told them what to do and directed them as how to do it and that they actually had to do it, that they had to slay the animal, they had to skin the animal, they had to prepare the hides, and then they had to sew them, put them on themselves, completely under God's direction. Of course, as you read the passage, if you take it absolutely literally, it says the Lord God made skin of skin for Adam and Eve and garments of skin, and clothe them. And it sounds like a direct action of God in, in this particular passage. But whatever the case is, I think that it's possible at this very moment that God explained to them the need for the blood atonement, which, of course, Adam and Eve would later, hopefully, pass on to their descendants. But we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get further down. 
I think it's important for us to note that the covering of the physical nakedness was really symbolic. Uh, I mean, they actually did cover themselves, and it was important to their psyche to cover themselves. But nevertheless, it, it still is symbolic. Because the essential thing, the much more important thing, is the covering of the spiritual nakedness to which every person is born today on planet Earth. Let me read a passage from Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Now, you're familiar, of course, with the uh, letters to the seven churches that uh, were given by Christ to John, in which he apparently uh, sent to the seven churches that he had sort of been a circuit-riding preacher for, it seems. We read in verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, and really the word beginning there is from the Greek arche, which means source, the source of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. The point here, he is really not talking about, in, in this passage, as we all, well understand, he's not talking about them running down to the local shop and buying a white tunic and, and putting it on to cover their physical nakedness. This, it, this is spiritually uh, stated here. It's talking about the white garments of righteousness, uh, which would be put on the individual to cover that individual's spiritual nakedness, the guilt, the shame that comes with sin and that can only be removed by the Redeemer's blood providing the necessary cleansing. The covering for the physical, the, the spiritual nakedness of Adam and Eve would only be provided by the blood of the atonement. Jesus Christ, we're told in the scripture, was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that God knew exactly what was going to transpire before it ever happened. No, we've, we've kind of jokingly talked about the fact that God probably, when he started out and saw the fall, he could have said, well, so much for plan A, let's switch to plan B. No, God knew what was going to happen before he ever created the universe, before he ever threw the first stars into space. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin, and he knew what would happen. And therefore, before the plan was actually put into action, Jesus Christ, as as the divine person of the Trinity had already agreed to become the lamb slain before the creation of it all. We can't comprehend that. We put ourselves in, in God's place and we say, why? Why do that? I mean, let's go with a different plan where they don't sin. But this was God's choice. It was his sovereign plan. And the symbolism that we have in the Old Testament, of course, is the symbolism of the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that had to be repeated over and over and over again, which was looking forward to that all-time sacrifice that Christ would make. And then we look back to it as we carry out the, 
the, uh, the communion uh, periodically. We, we remember that sacrifice specifically that Jesus Christ had made. And it was that blood which he shed, which would provide the white garments. We, that seems strange, doesn't it? That, that blood, you could wash your garments in blood and they come out white. It doesn't seem normal. We're always trying to fight to get blood out of something and it's difficult to do. But I didn't put this on the outline, but in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, we, we see this stated specifically. Again, we read this passage a few weeks ago having to do with John seeing this multitude coming uh, before the throne of the Lamb. And in verse 14 he says, And he said to him, My Lord, you know. The question had been asked, Who are these? And, of course, John didn't know, so he asks the, uh, uh, the angel to respond. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that is not a, a kind of a natural relationship there. But it's a supernatural relationship that the blood of Jesus Christ makes our spiritual garments as they were white as snow and makes us clean from the stain, the spot of our sin. And so it would be for Adam and Eve. Now, obviously, they didn't understand all this theology because it hadn't been revealed yet. We don't know exactly what all God did reveal to them. We know, and we'll see this, I think, as it come along, that in, he had to at least reveal to them enough for, for them to know that a sacrifice had to be made. Let's look at the next three verses that complete chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, let, now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This passage begins powerfully. The uniplural Godhead, Yahweh Elohim is the actual wording here, is holding counsel with himself. And, of course, the plural us is used, indicating most evangelical scholars believe the Trinity, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communing together, holding counsel, and ultimately rendering judgment. Man has become like one of us. One of us, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's important for us to know that this is not a likeness in essence. Man is not like God in essence, because only God can be God. And neither was man like God in attribute. We do not possess the attributes of God. You know, we, we have not omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and, and immutability and all of these other things which are attributes of God. We don't possess the of the fountain of agape love. This is not what is being referred to here. 
The likeness was in knowing the goodness of God and at the same time, the evil of disobedience. Seeing the other side of the spiritual realm that, of course, God knew in its entirety. Now, Satan had said and implied to Eve that if she were to take of the fruit, she would become like God. They discovered that that was not true. They did not become God at all. In fact, they became fallen humans. But it is true that Adam and Eve did come to know experimentally at least the evil portion of the spiritual realm. I, I think it's rather interesting. You, you look at the peoples of the world. You look at the primitive peoples of the world. And the primitive peoples of the world, are they aware of the spiritual realm? Huh. Yes, they are aware of the spiritual realm. If you've read the numerous books that have, that have come out over the last uh, 40 years or so about, for example, the penetration into central New Guinea by various groups and, and the portrayal which is given, for example, in Don Richardson's Peace Child or Lords of the Earth or which is given in uh, The People at Time Forgot, many different books that have been published, you you discover that these people, primitive as they are, Stone Age people as they have been, were very aware of the spiritual realm. But what side of the spiritual realm were they aware of? The evil side. They knew about evil spirits, and their whole life was centered around appeasing the evil spirits. What did they know about good? Very little. It was not until the gospel came and God gave the key, as in one instance, the peace child, to break open that society, to understand that there is a God of love, a God of good, and they don't have to live in fear of these real evil spirits. So what happened was, of course, rather than man becoming like God, in the sense that all that is good is his and that he has a knowledge of evil, it's the evil which became predominant simply knowing that there is a God of goodness. But the evil became pervasive in the minds of Adam and Eve and of their descendants. I think Adam and Eve began to perceive the fact that joy, peace, self-fulfillment was not to be found in being like God or being gods, but that came only with fellowship, in fellowship with God. And that, of course, is our hope. I don't think, I, I trust none of us wants to be God or a God, but that we all want fellowship with God because that's what gives us the joy and the peace that we desire to have in this life. Now, the passage tells us that to prevent mankind from living indefinitely in this physical fallen condition, that God removed them from the garden so that they would no longer have access to the tree of life. Now, it's hard really to tell here from this verse, uh, 22, because it sounds like, if you read that verse, that if he just stretched out his hand once and took of the fruit, that he would live physically forever. I don't think that's really what is meant there. I think that it means that if the ongoing eating of this fruit were to occur, that then there would be the perpetuation 
of this physical existence. I don't think it was a one and only type bite, you know, like in the case of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but an ongoing thing, at least as it was in existence in the garden. I don't think Adam and Eve were too keen on the idea of leave the garden. Even in their fallen condition, they enjoyed the beauty and the desirability of the garden, just as you and I do. In our fallen condition, we appreciate that nice, quiet, warm garden where the birds are chirping and the flowers are blooming and the grass is so sweet and, and the breeze is so gentle. I mean, we, we look to that as something desirable. And so would they, because theirs was even more perfect, although sin had entered, the garden just didn't overnight turn into a pile of thorns and weeds. It was still a wonderful place. And it was there that they had walked and talked with God, and those, those uh, memories were burned in their minds. So they weren't real keen on the idea of, of getting out of the garden, of leaving the garden, the paradise. Because I think that it was becoming clear to them that the outside world was turning hostile, relentlessly hostile. But God drove them out. How he did it, we don't know. You see the paintings, and Adam and Eve are kind of slinking off, looking back, and sometimes there's a painting of an angel with a big sword chasing them out of the garden. It doesn't say that that's what happened, but it says God drove them out. Now God, of course, could have done it any way he chose. Now, it doesn't say that he drove them out the east side of the garden, but it does say that at the east side of the garden, he placed the cherubim, so it seems likely that they left on the east side. Now, a lot of commentators go into this word east because so many times in Scripture it says that the, the nation to the east, the city to the east, the people to the east seem to represent evil. Now, I don't really think that we can set up the four uh, points of the compass and say the east side of the compass is evil and the west side of the compass is good. But it seems that east sometimes at least does seem to represent the place from which comes evil forces. And we see this in Revelation as well as we do here. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were east of, Adam and e uh, of, uh, of Abraham. But of course, had Abraham traveled over into Jordan, it would have been west. So I don't know how much uh, we need to lean on that kind of a concept. But we're told that God stationed a cherubim, or the cherubim, cherubim, B-I-M, that's plural, so indicating more than one, at the entrance to the garden on the east side. Now the question is, who are the cherubim? This is the first real implication of angelic being the existence of angelic beings in Scripture as you begin with Genesis 1 and go through the Scripture in that particular direction. I thought it would be good for us to at least look at a couple of other references to cherubim. This, by the way, is not all by any means, but uh, a couple of references to the cherubim that uh, might help us get a little picture of these really awesome beings. In Isaiah... Uh, chapter 37, verse 16, we read, this is Hezekiah's response, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim. Now, obviously, he's referring to the cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant. But the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant were representative of something greater beyond 
that physical box overlaid with gold. And I think that's portrayed for us, at least in part, in Ezekiel chapter 10. I'd like to read a few verses there because they give us somewhat of a description of the cherubim. And of course, it's a very enigmatic description. As, as we look at it, we don't come up with a real clear-cut idea of what a cherubim looked like. But nevertheless, we have some kind of an idea. Ezekiel 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne. Okay? Verse 9. Then I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheel was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone, probably a very golden color. Something burl is referred to here. And when they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. And their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. And the wheels belonging to all, the wheels belonging to all four of them. The wheels were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels. Getting a real clear picture, are you here? And each one had four faces. The face, the first face was the face of a cherub. Well, that's real helpful. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Kibar. Verse 20. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the, the God of Israel by the river Kibar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, each one four wings, and beneath their wings was the form of hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kibar. Each one went straight ahead. All right. Now that we clearly know what the cherubim looked like, and, and there are other passages uh, that you can read uh, in Scripture that uh, give us a little bit of an idea. The only form that God really authorized the Israelites to make was the form of a cherub. And it was, of course, fashioned on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was woven into the veil which uh, separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. What the Scripture seems to indicate is that the cherubim are the highest of all the angelic beings that they're very top of the angelic pyramid. That there is a hierarchy. Billy Graham wrote a book called Angels, Angels, Angels. And, and in it he seems to uh, feel that, that there is a hierarchy of angels. And of course we're told, and we read the passage before in Ezekiel, that Lucifer himself, that Satan himself, was the anointed covering cherub, which seems to indicate the highest of all the created angelic beings, the highest of all created beings in that sense. And so here we have this being coming, and more than one of at least, blocking the entrance to the east of the garden. Now, if Adam and Eve had described them, would they have said, oh, they've got wheels, and they've got wings, and they've got four faces, and they've got eyes all over? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very strange picture to us because these are spiritual beings. 
And that was what was seen by Ezekiel in the vision. Now, the scripture also teaches us that we might encounter angels unawares, which means obviously angels can take on even human form. They can take on many different forms, it would seem to me. But I think what's important here is to see that the cherubim were right adjacent to, underneath, surrounding the throne of God. Of all the created beings, they stand closest to the Lord God in this particular context. Now, in the 22nd chapter of Revelation, we won't turn there, but it talks about the tree of life. And the tree of life is just outside the throne of God. Along the river which flows forth from the throne, there is the tree of life. Apparently, multiple trees of life are located there. Associated again with the throne of God. And so it might be that God sent the cherubim down because this tree is associated with his throne and thus those which guard the very throne are those that he sent to guard the tree. We need, of course, to be careful as we use this kind of terminology. What does it mean, guard? Who could possibly assault the throne of God? No one. God could have used the lowest of all the angels, whatever that might be, to guard the entrance to the garden because Adam and Eve could not have broken through. Mere human beings are no match for even the lowliest of angels, if you can use that kind of terminology about angels. It's simply this is what God chose to do, I think for his own glory and to magnify himself. The cherubim, I think, were surrounded by great brilliance and they wielded the sword, which of course was very frightening to Adam and Eve. And of course would obviously make the garden off limits to the evil forces all. Whatever happened to the garden? It's still there. Well, certainly the tree of life still exists, as we see it in the book of Revelation. But the Garden of Eden at the time was still there, yes. Is it there today? Apparently not. Did it exist until the time of the flood? Who knows? We simply know that it does not exist anywhere today. Even though I've been in a place that's called the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Maybe you have too. There's a little place along the San Lorenzo River uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains where they call the Garden of Eden. And I guess they call it that because um, a lot of the people who go there skinny dip. <laughs> we didn't know that. <laughs> and we just saw the sign, Garden of Eden. So we, unfortunately, nobody was doing that when we were there. But it was really a beautiful place. Trees hanging down, this little river flowing through. It was a very beautiful place. Later on, after we'd been there, we found out that that's one of the reasons it's called the Garden of Eden. There are other places, I'm sure, around the world that people refer to as the Garden of Eden, but not obviously this particular garden. Well, let's move on to the fourth chapter. I know you're saying about time. This fourth chapter is going to tell us a great deal about the early development of the human race. And, of course, it's going to tell us the story of violence. Violence entering the human race. Today we live in a world where man is practicing constant inhumanity to man. This is where it begins. Doesn't begin in the garden in the sense of actual violence of one human to another, but it does begin very, very early. 
Let's read the first eight verses of chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their, of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. The fourth chapter picks up sometime after Adam and Eve have been forced out of the garden. I, I don't think they really went very far from the garden. They might have still been within sight of it. We don't know. We don't know the time frame either. How long is this after they were ejected from the garden? I think they were trying to win a living from the soil nearby. Now, I think it's important for us to note that, and, and of course the Bible is very blunt about these things, it says that the man had relations with his wife, and obviously, clearly, sexual relations with his wife. And, no, I cannot possibly conceive how this could be the first that they had ever had. It just, it just doesn't seem at all logical that this would be the first of their sexual relationship. But it seems to be the first in which conception results. Now, the implication here may be, if we view this as the very first conception, that ver chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis cover a very short period of time, and that the beginning of chapter 4 is, is just a matter of days, probably, after the time that they leave the garden, or maybe weeks. In fact, the whole time frame could, could be just days or weeks. It could have happened in extremely rapid order. This seems to be implied because, first of all, again, let's go back to the condition of Adam and Eve. They were perfect in the garden before they fell. After they fell, spiritual death set in, but physical death was something that would not come to them for a long time. They'd live for nearly a millennium. At least we know Adam would. And therefore, their, their bodily processes were still near perfect. That being so, there was probably very little of anything to hinder conception happening very, very quickly. I think both of them were, would have to be perfectly fertile. I mean, there, there was no, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> right. Certainly there was none of that yet. <laughs> I, I don't think there was any sexual dysfunction either or, or any of these other things. 
So unless God purposely stepped in and prevented conception until this appointed hour and, and did allow months or, or years to transpire, which he could have done, but if we look at it perfectly in the natural, we're probably talking about a very compact time frame here. It didn't take them very long. It didn't take Satan very long to get around to tempting Adam and Eve, in other words. And it didn't take them very long to, to yield. It didn't take God very long to deal with them and to eject them from the garden. In fact, all of that could have taken place within a matter of almost hours, literally. Apparently, the first human being to bor be born on planet Earth is Cain. That's what seems to be implied here. Now, it's possible that that's not so. It's possible that God simply wanted to pick up the story here with Cain and that others had been born and that there is a longer time frame. But, but we can't prove that from Scripture. We would just be conjecturing to say so. The, the time-honored tradition has been to look upon Cain as the first person to be born on planet Earth. And, of course, Eve's response seems to support that idea. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Why would she have said that if this is, you know, child 23 or something, you know? She probably wouldn't have. So it, it seems to be that he is the first to be born. His name is Cain, which means gotten, and is derived from her statement that I just read. She seems to acknowledge in that statement that she gave birth with the help of God, that God was within her helping to generate this replica of her husband, a man, a boy, a child, a boy child. This, I think, could therefore indicate that Adam and Eve had been restored to fellowship with God through their faith and through their obedience and through carrying out the act of the blood atonement. They had been restored to fellowship with God. That can be derived, I think, from this. But not all commentators believe this. One by the name of John Salehammer, in his commentary on, verse, on this particular verse, believes that Eve's words are actually a boast. He believes that the verse, that, that uh, statement, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, could be translated out of the Hebrew to read, I have created a man equally with the Lord. Just as God raised Adam out of the dust, so I have generated a man. This is his interpretation, and not his alone. Now, it's possible. I mean, their minds are now becoming depraved. And I think as, as, as sin continues to impact human existence, it's very feasible that this could be true. The, this interpreter says that later on she is humbled as she sees the diabolical character of this person, Cain, and that she saw things more accurately when after the birth of Seth she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel for Cain kill him. Now his idea is that at first she was arrogant that she had done this, but when she saw what she had actually produced, she finally yielded herself before God and acknowledged that she had not created anything that was worthwhile. Personally, I don't like that interpretation. 
It's possible. That's why I have offered it as at least one interpretation. But when you read through the things which took place in chapter 3 and the curse which God placed upon the human race and, and the driving them out of the garden and, and the, the reality of the cherubim and so forth and the effort by which they were going to have to wrestle with the soil to produce life seems a little far-fetched to me that she would make such a statement. Rather, I think that the statement is rightly translated here, I have gotten the man-child with the help of the Lord. And that it is a statement of humility and of faith and not a statement of arrogance. Now, how long after the birth of Cain did the birth of Abel occur? We're not told. But John Calvin has a very interesting way of looking at this. He says, as you read this passage, you discover there is one statement of conception, but two statements of birth. He therefore believes that Abel and Cain were twins, that Cain was born first, and then Abel was born second. That's possible. And of course, could, could partly be uh, an explanation for their rivalry later on. Now, you can't derive that directly here. You could, of course, read a time frame in there between verse 1 and verse 2 when it says, and again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Maybe that means years later. And usually that's the way we view it, as Abel being younger than Cain by not just a matter of hours or minutes, but actually of years. Abel means vanity. And that very interpretation or, or that very use for his name seems also to indicate maybe the passage of time. Because to Cain, she gives the name gotten, implying gotten of the Lord. And then she turns around and names Abel vanity. It, it doesn't seem like what you do for brothers, twins, I mean. It could be that more time has passed and they've recognized how devastating the impact of sin was becoming and how monotonous and boring and, and difficult life was becoming, and therefore life is vain. Already they had the view of Solomon in his later years when he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I think it's very important for us now to notice something about Cain and Abel. They, they grow up, and, and the passage of time is implied here. We don't know how many years later is this. It says... Abel was a keeper of the flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Well, obviously this took place many years later. They, they probably weren't keeping flocks and, and tilling the ground at two or three. Probably it was many years later. And we're probably talking about young manhood. Who, who knows? Even full adulthood. Especially as it comes to the time when Cain slays Abel. That, that could be 20, 40, 60, who knows how many years they had lived before that event takes place. But what's important here in, in verse 2 is not the time frame, but what it is these young men were doing. It says that Abel was a keeper of the flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground. They were carrying on what has to be viewed in the, in the supposed evolution of mankind as an advanced occupation. According to more modern anthropologists, Mankind didn't possess the knowledge or ability 
to domesticate an animals or plants until late in his evolution. Mankind had been on planet Earth a long time before he ever knew how to do that. We evolved, as you know, probably, from primates. And as we evolved away from these primates and became human, two to three million years passed and we were grunting and groaning and bopping each other with sticks and bones. You know, a la 2001, if you saw that, you know, with a, throws the bone up in the air and comes down, oh, wow, whack. Ah, suddenly it dawns on this gorilla that if I use a bone, <laughs> I have an advantage over the one who doesn't use a bone. To me, that's so absurd. It's vanity. <laughs> Going through hundreds of thousands of years of the Paleolithic and the Mesolithic, it's not until the Neolithic, the New Stone Age, that man finally somehow, by accident, drops some grains around and discovers that they come up. And he thinks, aha, if I plant these on purpose, then I can grow them where I want them instead of having to go out and hunt because man had been a hunter and a gatherer for all of his existence up to that point in time. Ranging the countryside, killing what he could kill, catching what he could catch, picking what he could pick, digging out of the ground what he found by trial and error was edible. You think about that, it's a very, very logical thought pattern. It's very rational and reasonable. That it wasn't until Cro-Magnon came along that man somehow learned how to domesticate plants and animals. And that this domestication was absolutely necessary because it was the domestication of plants and animals that allowed man to become sedentary. And until he became sedentary, he couldn't possibly evolve a civilization. As long as he's nomadic and chasing out across the countryside and swinging from trees and living in caves, he couldn't possibly develop a civilization. Civilization is based upon agricultural surplus so that there are individuals who don't have to farm the ground. There are individuals who can give their time and their talents to learning, to becoming priests and understanding the movement of the stars and the planets. The main problem with this otherwise very reasonable explanation is the Bible clearly informs us that mankind had domesticated animals and plants from the very beginning that there never was a time when man didn't know how and didn't have domesticated plants and animals. Let me again read the verse we read weeks ago now. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That was their status, king of the earth. Humans were to rule and all the animals, even the fish of the water and the birds of the sky, were in submission to man, in effect, domesticated. Wildness came as a result of the fall. It did not precede the fall. I think as Adam and Eve, I mean, when God brought the animals to Adam, did he stand back like this, you know, as he looked at the tiger and said, I, you're a kitty. <laughs> no. The tiger was a very tame and docile animal, certainly an animal that he could have, if there was a tiger in the garden, may have just been a cat, which later, through mutations, became lions and tigers and, you know, cheetahs and uh, all other cats. Whatever. Certainly these animals were not fearful of man. So wildness comes as a result of the fall. Wildness of animals, wildness 
of plants. And I don't think it happened overnight. I think it developed through generations of time. But even if it didn't, let's say wildness came like that because of the curse. We have to remember something about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve weren't as you and I are. What do scientists tell us? That we use 5 to 10% of our brain, some 1 to 2%. <laughs> Adam and Eve had full power. Adam and Eve had intellects unclouded by genetic mutations through the centuries that would cause confusion and all the problems that we have today. There's a tremendous variety between human beings today. There are people with very small heads with very high intelligence. And people with very big heads with very small intelligence. Adam and Eve had, I think, nigh on to perfect intelligence even after the fall. Before that, they had perfect intelligence in the sense of being able to use the full capacity that God had built in, which was finite, of course, but a lot closer to infinite than ours are. And, and therefore, it wouldn't have taken them long to figure out how to domesticate anything. We, we've got to get away from the alley-oop idea of Adam and Eve in, in case we have that. You know, that they swung from trees and clubbed things. No, they were very extremely intelligent people. And in fact, some postulate that before the flood, mankind could have been close to the opportunity of actually going into space. That technology was very highly and rapidly developed by the time of the flood because of the long time spans that men and women lived and because of the much higher level of intelligence that they would have had before sin disease, decay, cosmic radiation, everything else caused the various deleterious mutations that would occur. They would have known how to domesticate animals and plants right off the bat. In fact, it says they went out to till the soil. Till the soil for what reason? To grow something that they had domesticated. From whom would Abel and Cain learn farming and herding? Well, from their parents. Who else? One commentator, Arthur Kustans, believes that the Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Neolithic, and Bronze Age all took place in the life of Adam and Eve. That instead of this long stretch out hundreds of thousands of years, that it's all compressed. Not that there wasn't an Old Stone Age, a Middle Stone Age, and a New Stone Age, and a Bronze Age, and now the Iron Age. But it had happened very, very rapidly. It didn't take Adam very long to figure out, well, if I do this more to the stone, that more to the stone, do this to that that pretty soon uh, he's, he's moved from very rudimentary tools to very highly refined bone and stone tools. Think about it for a minute. It's very logical. Very logical. Whence cometh, therefore, the caveman? Where does the degenerated peoples of paleontology come from? Where do they come from? Well, I believe that descendants of Cain, Abel, if Abel had any children before he was killed, Seth, and the other children, that there were branches of their descendants which broke away. They were isolated from the others that because of the harsh environment and genetic mutation became a degenerated race of people. And that this degeneration pro produced the primitive cave dweller as such, who lived by hunting and gathering. What's interesting today is, and what has, which, what has really been a, an enigma 
for the modern anthropologist is that you have living today fossils. <laughs> there are tribal groups that are every bit as primitive as anthropologists postulate man used to be 100, 200, 300,000 years or a million years ago, who, who live with almost nothing. They run around stark naked and hit things with sticks and stones. Total Stone Age people. Now, if man had evolved, what happened here? What, what are these vestiges of the past? Sort of got left out of evolution? No, the picture is far easier to understand as man was here and he devolved, degenerated down through time and that there are branches which have degenerated further and others which have been curtailed, slowed in their degeneration by the development of civilization. This makes far more sense, seems to be portrayed in the rocks of the paleontologist. I think that your Doni and Dayak and Mon Moni and other primitive tribal groups are allowed testimony to the fact that mankind has devolved, not evolved. And we see it every day, don't we? Our wonderful, advanced American society where people go out and massacre people in the streets and where drugs are running rampant. This is evolution? Huh. Yeah, right. Well, let me uh, end by reading a couple of verses. They're not on your outline. 1 Corinthians, you know this passage, this verse very well. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul gives the whole thing about love, and then he says in verse 12, For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully just, then I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. Science has become the Tower of Babel of modern society in many ways. Science is wonderful. It's done some glorious things. But those who make a god out of it and put it up there on the top and want to worship exhibit the very thing that brought the fall in the garden, the desire to be God without acknowledging the one who is God. We see dimly today. And for anybody to get up there and say, this is how it is, folks, and we can just spell it all out because we've interpreted the rock record correctly, that's folly. We see dimly. One day when the facts are in, and that may not be until we're on the other side of Chile, Jordan, then we'll know, just as today we are known by God. And I think that's where we ought to put our, our faith and our trust and not be swallowed up by these things which seem to move in like a flood just because evidence supposedly is overwhelming in this way. It is only if you accept that theoretical base, the humanistic theory, theoretical base. Well, we're going to next week look more specifically what happened between Cain and Abel.